0: As a quick note before this episode begins, this episode was actually recorded on a farm. So throughout this episode, you will hear the noises of a farm, the occasional roosting, rooster crowing, and the occasional dog barking. I hope that you enjoy the extra ambiance and I hope that you enjoy this conversation. It was definitely one of our most unique and exciting episodes of this podcast so far. Enjoy.
1: My father was incarcerated and he is incarcerated to today. Statistically, we have higher rates of substance abuse, addictions, incarcerations, even the homeless population. Statistically, we see a lot of foster and adoption stories ending uh, in homelessness. Every addiction is a result of trauma, but not every trauma will result in addiction
0: and thank you so much for joining us for another episode today we are joined by Jamie Tanner how are you today
1: I'm wonderful thank you
0: all right so can you tell us where we are right now because it is absolutely beautiful here
1: thank you well we are meeting at Simple Sparrow Care Farm which is located outside of Austin Texas and a care farm is a place where we can take a lot of different therapeutic methods and combine it with practical farming technique so another way of thinking of it is how we can therapeutically utilize farm. That's fantastic.
0: So how long have you been out here doing all of this?
1: Yeah. So my husband and I bought the farm about 10 years ago and it started off as just a hobby for myself and my four children. My husband is an electrical engineer, so he has zero interest in farming (laughs) um, or animals or their uh, bodily functions. And, um, our location was ideal for us because we're very near the 130 toll road, and so my husband was able to get into Austin very easily for work, but then I had just a little bit of country to make my heart happy. Um, I grew up farming and ranching up north. Uh, family had wheat ranches and cattle ranches in Montana. My grandmother had a small little farm in Colorado. And I just had so many wonderful experiences growing up on farms. Um, I experienced early childhood trauma. All right. My father was incarcerated, and he is incarcerated to today. And so growing up with that um, affected me a lot. And at the time, I didn't know that it was trauma. But as an adult, I learned um, what had really happened back then and, and psychologically what was going on and a farm and a ranch and being outdoors, especially growing up up North in the Colorado Rockies, Mm -hmm. nature was always very therapeutic for me. And I always found a deeper peace and community with God when I can be outside. So that was probably the strongest driving force for starting a hobby farm was for my own self care. Um, Growing up, uh, my mom ended up getting remarried um, after she divorced my dad, and then I ended up joining the military as a nurse medic in the army, and so there was a lot of things I was exposed to, mm-hmm. and again, I always just found that outside animals, gardening, it really helped me, and uh, like nothing else could. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I wanted to recreate that and continue kind of that self-care journey, That's and nice. uh, But yeah, since then, it's grown into so much more, and uh, we can get into those details whenever. we can.
0: Uh, So real quick, tell me a little bit about your experience in the Army. You said that you spent five years there a little bit earlier, right? Correct. And you joined right out of high school or after college?
1: So I joined the ROTC program when I started college at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and I was on a scholarship there. And after about two years, I had started making some really bad choices um, with my life. And a lot of that now I can look back and and see just kind of those effects of my early childhood trauma and how they were starting to come out at that time. Um, I started dating a guy who was actually very abusive. And uh, it came to a point in my life where I just realized, okay, this isn't who I want to be. This isn't how I want my life, and so I needed to do something very drastic, and so um, I decided to take a semester off of school and backpack Europe, and um, when I came back stateside, I was gone for about three or four months backpacking, and um, when I came back to the states, I didn't have my ROTC scholarship anymore, and I didn't really know what I would do with my life to meet the goals that I had. So I decided, well, I was going to be in the army anyway as an officer. <laughs> might as well just enlist and do what's called the SMP program. And then I can go back and finish my college degree with the Montgomery uh, GI Bill. So that's what I ended up doing. That's and, fantastic. Uh, yeah.
0: And then you went on to get your master's of theology, Correct.
1: Correct. So that was, yes, several, several years later and long roads later. But yes, yes.
0: But still, so you have a lot of insight onto trauma, onto education, and to the spiritual aspects of these things, which is a real rarity here. Usually you have an expert in one field or another, but it seems like you just have your fingers in every pie, which makes <laughs> your opinion so much more useful. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. So let's get a little bit into your work here.
1: Sure.
0: So you said that you started it 10 years ago as a hobby farm. Correct. When did it transition into this house?
1: So the house is actually where my family lives. So we don't do residential care. Everything we do is um, you come for a visit and you learn about the farm. Um, we Everything that we do is, is based on neuroscience, um, particularly trauma, mm-hmm. um, and how to care for people that have experienced significant trauma. So um, it, it mattered a lot to me that when we were starting out as a nonprofit, we've only been a nonprofit about three years, um, but that, co- that whole concept of a care farm is very new to American soil. And people do it, they just don't call it that. They don't know that language yeah. definition. But when we're actually looking at that model again of how to integrate a ton of therapeutic methods with practical farming that that model is prevalent throughout europe they have thousands if not tens of thousands of care farms yeah. they're called social farms and gardens therapy farms and gardens and it's a recognized therapeutic intervention in european countries when we look Other places in the world, Canada, the U.S., Australia, there are people starting them because we witness and observe people learning to care for these animals, growing in their confidence, growing in compassion, and then ultimately healing um, through a lot of their hurts and traumas. So we look at our model um, and our mission as learn, grow, heal, succinctly put, it's learn, care, grow compassion, heal the world. With the theology component tied into that, we believe that it's really of God for healing to take place. And it's even of God to give us an ability to learn to store the earth in his creation, that it's a divine thing for us to even grow and be compassionate. And so even though we have this scientific, evidence-based, therapeutic approach, we really look at everything as being under a broader umbrella of theology.
0: That's fantastic. So when you're working with people here, who do you usually work with? How many people do you work with?
1: Programs and services are for all ages, backgrounds, and abilities. So we work with a very large population in the community. And the reason that we're so broad in our offerings is because we believe that as humans we all have the calling and the purpose to help creation flourish so not all humans have the same ability or capacity to store it in the same way and so we are very specialized in creating custom programs per age background and ability so for example one of our programs is called Book and a Bunny. And I go to a local coffee shop, or I did before COVID, <laughs> um, and I would read a children's story to preschoolers and their moms. And so her dad would come. Um, and so while parents were drinking coffee, then littles were hearing a story and meeting a bunny. And we would um, have like kind of a sing-songy rhythm thing. You know, just very age appropriate for the little bodies.
0: That's adorable.
1: Um, and uh, then another one we did, um, we have a mobile microfarm program. And that's actually where we bring animals to people out in the community. Um, and unfortunately, 2020, we had to basically pause that program as well. Um, but historically we would go to schools Um, elementary, middle, high school, didn't matter, and do these little presentations, talk about mindfulness and how our brain works so that when they met the animals, they kind of could relate and understand how the animal would be feeling if the animal was stressed and how to recognize that. And I can get into more of that. Um, We also would bring animals to nursing homes, memory care facilities, and those were incredible experiences. Um, again, on pause because of COVID. Mm-hmm. But people with the dementia and Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's, a lot of them grew up in farming communities. And so to smell an animal or hear a chick peep again brings them back to a happier time. And um, they would become lucid. So they'd come to a place where they could start interacting with you. Um, in the midst of their disease. So those um, are just kind of some examples of how we gear our programs for ages. Um, Backgrounds, depending on if the individual has a very traumatic background, our whole staff is trained in TBRI, which stands for Trust-Based Relational Intervention. And that's just a trauma-informed training so that we are able to kind of recognize when people might be getting triggered, like a stress would be triggered. So if we have, for example, um, a young kid out here that has some kind of a sensory processing or they don't like loud noises, then we know how to um, adjust their experience at the farm so that they can avoid the loud honking geese, for example. Um, So that's how we can adjust for background. Also, we work with a lot of individuals with PTSD mm-hmm. or compound PTSD, and um, knowing a little bit about their their background and things, it helps us to create a better program where they're gonna be regulated out here at the farm and not be triggered. Um, and then the the ability part, um, we do serve people of all abilities, so. Like today we have a volunteer who's a special needs adult woman and she's been coming out volunteering for about two months now and she loves it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, we also have kiddos in wheelchairs that can come out. We are wheelchair accessible. Um, You know, we, we, again, we believe that every human has the capacity to interact with creation and in their own way be able to steward and care for it and help it flourish. So all ages, backgrounds and abilities.
0: That's amazing. So can you tell me a little bit about the psychology behind working with animals? Why does that calm people down so well? What is it about mm-hmm. nature that helps these people with trauma to overcome those bad neural pathways?
1: Yeah. What's going on there? So part of our work here is to also give People tools to do care for themselves and care for others. And so for your listeners, I highly recommend um, a couple of resources for you. You can find these resources I'm going to go over on our website, simplespara.farm slash research. Um, But you can also Google all of these I'm going to be talking about. So you can kind of learn for yourself succinctly and easily as possible (laughs) how the brain works how our biochemistry works um because understand i mean there's whole fields of study and it's a lot um but for for the purpose of this podcast um we we are looking at how our experiences and our senses so what we see touch taste feel how all of those experiences affect us neurologically And we also know that our experiences and the things that we witness and live through in our life, they are physical external things that are having an internal effect on us psychologically and biologically. And so um, the, the big main focus, what we built our programs on, was the neuroscience of the brain and Dr. Bruce Perry started the Child Trauma Academy, and he has a something called the NMT, which stands for the Neural Sequential Model of Therapeutics. And in his work, his team, they figured out and, and could prove that the brain functions sequentially. And so when you have somebody who might be alerted or upregulated, anxious then they're not going to be able just to sit down in a classroom, for example, and be quiet and sit still and listen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They have to be able to transition from that upregulated state to mid-regulation and then to down-regulation. So that's kind of the summary of his work. But again, his name is Dr. Bruce Perry, Fantastic. the Child Trauma Academy. We'll and put they, those
0: in the show notes for today. Yeah,
1: and they have a lot of really good information. Um, so what that tells us is that if we have somebody out here at the farm who might be a very anxious person, then we don't want to give them upregulating activities. So we don't necessarily want to have them spend all time, all the time with the geese honking in the geese, but we will start them in the barn with the loud cacophony of all of the chickens and the geese because we want to match their their level. So if they're up we want to match them in that state. And then we can transition to more down-regulating activity. So while they're still in the barn, we might have them start helping us with the feed. And so by positioning our bodies where they're looking down um, with their head and they're starting to scoop that grain, then they're doing a task that is rhythmic, that's repetitive, and it's starting to help that upregulated state start to come down to mid-regulated. So then they can go off and they feed the animals and we move out of the barn and now they're in a mid-regulated state. So they're not as alert as they were. And so we wanna keep kind of down, going into that down regulation. And so we can start having them maybe petting an animal or holding a bunny. So we'll move up to the porch and there's a rocking chair on the porch and so they can sit in the rocking chair and hold the bunny and they can pet the bunny and the, the live animals act as a weighted blanket. So it's something warm. It's something soft. It's comforting. Um, we very strategically put the animals for holding on the left side of the individual. Mm-hmm. What that does is that activates the right side of the brain and the right side is responsible for more of those regulating things. Really. So, that's just kind of some little tricks and tools that we do. Again, everything we're doing physically with the body, it's having these um, rich somatosensory experiences. It creates the the different kind of brain waves and activity that we want going on in their brain. Um the reason that this matters to know a little bit of the neuroscience um, is because people cannot create a relational attachment a meaningful relational attachment unless they are regulated so another great tool i'll give your listeners is dr dan siegel's hand model of the mind or hand model of the brain It's fantastic. I'll go over it briefly. But basically, what Dr. Segal explains is we have three thinking brains. Mm -hmm. We have our brain stem, which starts developing in utero, and that is responsible for our fight, flight, or freeze response. So that's our brain that says we need to stay alive. It's also called like the primal brain or reptile brain. (laughs) Animals, even insects, they have this brain, and it's just for the most basic biological Functionings for survival. Behind that is our limbic brain. That's in the back of our head. That is where we start processing our feelings and our emotions. And then over on top of all of that is our cortex. And our cortex is where we can start thinking through things logically. And at the very front of that is our prefrontal cortex. And when we reach age 18 to 20, ideally our neural synapses are all the way to the front of our brain. So our brain grows from the inside out and back to front. And the experiences that we have, the sensory interactions that we encounter in our day-to-day living, what we touch, what we taste, what we see, what we smell, it all affects our brain development and how we're learning. And so when we can zero in and look at these particular neural pathways um when we experience something very very stressful and traumatic in life such as like a natural disaster like a hurricane or even um continuous abuse or neglect it's actually affecting how that neural synapse grows and so when we have these experiences of trauma of this extreme stress there's a ton of different like biology factors going on. So different hormones um, are secreted in our bodies, like the, the cortisol, the adrenaline, all that stuff. And it actually makes it harder for our brain to develop these neural synapses for connection, for attachment. And so one of the things with the farm is with these experiences of, of having the up-regulation, moving to mid, and then down-regulation, We're putting that brain in that just right state for learning, for a meaningful relational attachment. And so that really is across the board for just human development in general. Um, The other kind of component out here is we do everything in relationship. And with that training that we all have, that TBRI, we approach everything being done in community. And so... We want to ultimately create a sense of community for safe relationship that is about care and compassion for one another, care and compassion for animals, for gardens, Um, again, that sense of stewardship of, of helping creation flourish in our own ability and in the way that we're all uniquely wired to do that, to contribute to that flourishing
0: fascinating. So let's take a little break from all of this serious things. Tell me a little bit more about your farm because you have a llama, you have chickens. Tell me their names and then we can get back into the serious stuff for a minute.
1: Yes. Give everybody
0: a little bit of a mental break.
1: Mental break. I know there's a lot of learning going on. There's a lot of neural synapses that are growing. Um, Yeah. So out at the farm, we're actually sending in our little our little trailer, our little office trailer, uh, looking out. And I, I do get very distracted. You have very nice eyes, Noah, but I love looking out. (laughs) I love looking out at my farm, um, to give your listeners kind of just a picture of the day. It's a beautiful clear day, the last day of October. And there are cows grazing in a pasture out on the horizon. There's monarch butterflies kind of floating in on the breeze, We've got guinea fowls, um, which are just fantastic. Um, They're wild little things from Africa is where they originate from. And you'll see them kind of fluttering around. There's geese. Um, The llama out there is eating at the hay bale. His name is Jacopo. (laughs) And then I don't see the dairy goats. They must be out in the barn. But I do see we have some visitors here loving on. Casey, who's our mini horse, we've got some little mini Cheviot sheep roaming around and they're about the size of a lab. I mean, they're not very big, but they're very fat and fluffy. They've got a lot of (laughs) wool. And so every time I look at them, I get excited about shearing season and how much (laughs) yarn we can get out of them. Um, So when you look out at the farm, there's a whole menagerie out there, a lot of different animals. But what we have built is a very intentional ecosystem. And there's some wonderful practices, um, you know, with regenerative farming. And and like I said, the Care Farm is a model of how we can integrate practical farming with therapeutic interventions. And so we kind of weigh both of those sides. So the practical farming aspect of the Care Farm is understanding the the unique characteristics, biology, and needs of these animals, paying attention to what's called animal husbandry. Um, that's how you're going to be handling the animals, what are their just basic biological needs as far as food, water, and shelter, how it varies, um, and um, we've put these animals together where we want to utilize as many symbiotic relationships as possible. So, they really benefit from one another being together in community. And of course, you know we see that that's our goal ultimately for humans as well, and our relationship with the animals. So the llama protects the goats, he's their guard. So he protects the dairy goats from coyotes. The guinea fowl, being as crazy and loud as they are, they usually are the first to spot hawks. And so they'll sound an alarm and I even see a shadow of some kind of a bird flying. Oh, it's yeah, there's one up there. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah, so if, if they see that first, they'll sound the alarm, and that is the cue for the chickens to take cover and get under something. <laughs> um, and uh, the geese, they're also very keen on intruders or unwanted predators. And so... They're kind of another level of, of defense and, and protection against the natural predators that would get the chickens. Um, and then the sheep and the horse, they do defecate a lot. <laughs> <laughs> they make a big mess. Um, but that actually is fantastic for us because we also have a very large vegetable garden. And in Texas, we have two growing seasons. And so we utilize as much of that Um, animal debris, free animal fertilizer um, in the garden and you can see one of our volunteers hauling out that wheelbarrow of stuff right now. She's gonna put it over in the garden and uh, we also use everything we clean out of the barn. We put it around our trees so we have a number of fruit trees and uh, it acts as a mulch and a long-term fertilizer for them. The chickens, they also scratch around the farm, and they help rehabilitate the soil because they help break down all that poop into smaller and smaller pieces. So it's fall right now. The grass isn't very green and pretty, but in the spring, we're the first piece of property to be nice and green because our ground is healthy. That's amazing. So, yeah. Yeah, It's very... It's very
0: cathartic to look out here when you when you're looking at this farm, and I know that it's silly to be talking about visual aspects on a podcast, but it just brings you back to a different time, and you can forget about everything. We were just talking about this a second ago, but it's gorgeous. You forget where you are, you forget your responsibilities, which has its downsides. But there's really no downside to being on a the farm. <laughs> there's just there aren't any. You can deal with the occasional piece of poop, but right, that's it.
1: That's right. <laughs> if dealing
0: with poop is your biggest problem, you are doing so good in life.
1: That's right. That's amazing. That's right. And, and even that, you know, it's everything we're, we're doing out here, all of our programs and services, um, we do point out the poop, right? We point out the <laughs> duty in life. Um, we use that as kind of a double, dual meaning. Um, we have a responsibility. So that's our duty, our sense of duty to care for the earth to care for the land, the gardens, the animals, to care for all living things, right? That's our duty. And there's just a lot of duty in life. And (laughs) so um, it it helps people to see it, that it's not all for naught. And, you know, even with our own duty in life and the hard things and the traumas that come, they're going to happen. But to create this ecosystem of the farm, you step back and it's, it's how our communities are modeled. And when you have this compassionate community, we all work together and we are together. And so it doesn't stop the duty from happening, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. stop the trauma. It doesn't prevent these bad things from happening. But what it does is it creates a safe place in this community that is the buffer to the trauma. And so we learned to deal with it together. And, uh, you know, just a little bit ago, you know, we could look out this window and we saw a number of volunteers. We saw our special needs helper. Um, She came with her dad today. They were helping at the farm. We see an elderly woman. She always comes with treats for all the animals. We see a family with a young girl who has experienced trauma. We see one of my staff. There's a couple college students that are coming out. That's that's our community right there. And it's a, a little snapshot of the world and how it could be. All these people from all these different backgrounds, all of these ages, different abilities coming together for flourishing.
0: That's beautiful. I think that it really shows the power of work, really. Like,
1: mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of
0: power going on here. But when you can get together and you don't have to worry about all these outside things, you can just accomplish so much. That's beautiful to see this community of animals and the community of people that you built around here. And I'm sure that there's always going to be a little bit of conflict. But I've been here for several hours and I can't say that I've seen <laughs> any. Which is, I don't know if you're putting on a good face because of the interview, well, the but it con- looks so the peaceful. the
1: conflict would probably come from that llama. I keep, I now, keep my eye on him. <laughs> remind me again of the
0: llama's name. You said that it was French, and I can oh, only yes, think of Jean Valjean now. Ja-
1: oh, there you go. It's Jacopo. 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 And, um, yes, he, he is very cheeky, and he can be <laughs> rather grumpy. Um, actually, a few summers ago, we had, um, Every summer, we offer um, an employment program here at Simple Sparrow. We're a very collaborative nonprofit and we partner with multiple organizations. But one of them is the Georgetown Project, and they have a summer employment program where they find um, partners in the community who can host students for work to get them job skills. And so, one of the high schoolers did a little painting in our barn, um, of Jacopo. And it says spit happens. <laughs> and, uh, so They all came out and, and, uh, everybody learns if you come out here repeatedly or, or continuously, then you will experience the, uh, Jacopo attitude. And, uh, but it is, it's endearing and it's wonderful to have a, he can just be his grumpy self. That's what he needs to be.
0: He's such an aesthetic piece on this farm. He really he stands is. out. It's he great. He
1: does. Yes. Yeah. He's quite the guy for sure. That's yeah. amazing.
0: So let's circle back. Now yes. that we've taken this wonderful little break, I really wish that all of our listeners could see this because it's gorgeous. You have pictures of the farm on your website, right? Oh yes. Yeah. That we will definitely attach that link just so that people can understand how beautiful this is. So let's circle back to your work here just a little yeah. bit more. So you said that you had a master's of theology after you got out of the army, after you were a nurse and did so many other amazing things. Tell me a little bit about how that religion plays into all of this psychology. Absolutely. Unfortunately, a lot of people think that that's separate. Mm -hmm. But as we were talking earlier, you have a very different opinion of it.
1: I do. So I look at everything, um, I think because of my faith, because of the experience that I had in my life and the things I've had the ability to learn I look at everything falling under theology because to me I see God is a creator and he's a creative God and he's a loving God and I really believe that the answers are in Genesis to how what is our purpose of living and we look at Genesis 1 26 through 27 and we see God at this point had just created all of the world, all of creation, as we know it. And God said, let us make mankind in our image. Let us make humans in our image and the image of God. He created them. And so I think to better understand that passage, we need to study the characteristics of God. And Christian faith tells us that God exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit and so the trinity is a community it's a community of of lovers that love one another perfectly and so to be made in the image of god we are to reflect that community it's not an isolated independent um all by yourself thing it's to view yourself as being an important part of the body and how god has uniquely wired you to reflect a very specific aspect of of God. Um, Dr. Jackie Reese wrote a really wonderful book, it's called Lime Green, but in that she talks about how if if God was a spectrum of color, and colors we can see, and even colors we can't see, and how each of us was made to reflect a particular color, and that humanity is collectively reflecting that whole spectrum. And so when we can think about theology through that lens and our relationship with God and even our relationship with one another, we really can start embracing this diversity and it's okay and it's good um, and we see that throughout scripture. I mean, in, even in Revelation, how it's, it's all nations and tongues and colors. I mean, everybody from all over. And um, with our purpose then as being this diverse, but everyone wired specifically how God designed them, it's again for that kingdom flourishing. And the purpose then of humans is to steward god's creation in a loving relationship with god and one another in the way that they were called and wired by god to do so and when we can embrace and look at our own unique gifting and wiring all of a sudden we're not so concerned with comparing ourselves to other people and going oh i wish i could be more like them i wish i could do things like that instead it's okay lord how have you made me to reflect you and what is the next step that I need to take to, to bring glory to you and coming back to the farm, circling back to that, you know, all these animals, they they all have specific needs, not only by the nature of their design, by the different breeds and species that we have out here, but even by their personalities. And so And this is where, again, just an example of how theology is kind of that bigger umbrella for me. If my philosophy and my foundation coming in and approaching farming is, one, stewardship, and two, looking at each thing as a unique individual and what are its needs, I'm now already establishing a great philosophy for how I'm going to care for these animals. So, you know, we don't think about it, but like, I'm not going to go feed my chickens the hay. Mm-hmm. That's not what they need to flourish. They need chicken feed. The sheep and the goats need the hay. And the chickens never compare themselves to the sheep going, oh, I wish I could eat the hay. No, they're, they're fine and they're content living up to their full potential as chickens, scratching around, finding the bugs. Um, and so there's just an example, too, of like how we can make it relatable for people because um, we can get so caught up um in in those comparisons or that that sense of feeling like I'm not enough, I'm not enough how I am. But if we can just step back and go, wait a second, God, God reaches people through his creation. How is God using his creation to teach us deeper truths about himself and about ourselves? And we just have the luxury of of science in a in a sense. We have the luxury of the the therapeutic stuff. We have the luxury of the the neuroscience of trauma um you know we have all that to to go back and just it it kind of emphasizes and underscores scripture because everything we do for therapeutic intervention the end goal is to help people have the tools to be a healthy functioning in relationships with others and to be a healthy functioning person contributing to community And so to me, it just, that is theology. We are made for community. We are made to love and to be loved. And when you just look at therapeutic interventions, just for the sake of therapeutic interventions, you get to the end of that road, it's kind of like, well, what's the point? Why are we doing all of this? Exactly. Why do we even need to provide recovery and rehab programs? Why does it matter, you know, with the homeless population? Why does Mm -hmm. it matter, um, Without the spiritual them, it aspect, then happen. it's just
0: without the spiritual aspect, then it, you just lose everything so quickly. Exactly. Which is so sad because if you're if you realize that you can help people, but there's no point to helping person to right. helping anyone else, it it just creates this depressing world view, and you have to ask yourself, what is the point? I think the other thing that you were talking about that's so beautiful is your place in this community. Now this is one of my pet peeves, so I may go on a little bit of a rant here, and I'm so sorry. But I think that people, they look at their relationships as always on a taking basis. Mm -hmm. They're, what can you give me that I need? That's right. And when you do that, I think that it reflects early childhood trauma that you're not reflecting on because in a good relationship, you're not talking about what can you give me, but how can we work together and what can I spread out to you? Mm -hmm. You're not viewing that other person as just a chicken who will give you meat or eggs. They have personalities. They're individuals. So I think even on something when you look at farm animals who are not as complex as humans, <laughs> they're still amazing and they still have their complexities. But if they have individual but if they have individual personalities that we can recognize, then we really need to work harder to recognize those individual personalities in the people around us that we walk past every single day. That's right. That's right. Yep. So what you're doing here is absolutely beautiful. So then we have to ask ourselves, how do all of these principles that we just learned how does that apply to the homeless? So my audience knows a little bit about my thoughts on the homeless, but considering all of your work, I would really love to hear your opinions and what we can actually do to help them
1: Yeah, so with looking at specific populations and demographics, there's a lot of evidence and statistics that show um, that there are certain populations that are more susceptible to homelessness, Um, particularly when we are viewing our communities through that trauma-informed lens. And so we can start to kind of understand, you know, just going over even the hand model of the mind, right, Dr. Dan Siegel, Um, understanding how the brain works, how it processes things. When when we're growing in utero, it's that brainstem that, Starts developing and growing first, and then it progresses to the limbic and then the, the cortex. If there's any kind of drug use in utero, alcohol, um, even if mom isn't moving around a lot, I mean, there's so many factors where um, trauma can happen even before this child is born. Um, and, and I want to just quick give a, a definition of trauma um, trauma is just anything that controls us where we have felt like we had no control over it so technically everyone has been traumatized everyone was born if you're on this earth. <laughs> so that's a very traumatic experience mm-hmm. because we had no control over it. it was all the things that were done to us we couldn't stop but the thing that's really tricky with trauma is that people process trauma differently and so they've even tried to come up with these markers for stress like stress markers and tried to quantify um, how stressful experiences affect us psychologically and it's really tricky science because it's all based on a person's personality it's based on their biochemistry makeup it's based even on their neurodevelopment and so um school shootings for example absolutely a traumatic experience for everyone involved And so even though these kids and these schools and these teachers, they had the same experience, they didn't all process that experience the same way. And so when we look at the long-term effects of that one traumatic event, we see that there's certain people that they have kind of moved on with their life and they've had very successful lives. Mm -hmm. And then there's other people that end up higher rates of drug use, suicide, incarceration, And so it's, again, it's a very tricky thing to be able to quantify how an individual is going to react to stress. And so, but what we do see with these, studying these populations is that the people that are connected in a community that have a safe relationship, even one safe person, they statistically end up way better off than someone who has isolated themselves, who is not connected to healthy relationships and safe community. So again, it just goes back to the theology. God created us for a relationship. He Mm -hmm. created us for a purpose. And so we can lose sight and we lose track of the value of staying connected. We lose track of, of our purpose and even the value of ourselves. And so... When we're looking then and zeroing in more on these populations, like the homeless population, statistically, we have higher rates of substance abuse, addictions, incarcerations, even the homeless population. Statistically, we see a lot of foster and adoption Mm -hmm. stories ending up uh, in homelessness. So it's a very complex situation There's really no easy answers. But if I could just give your listeners a little bit of insight on trauma, then instead of feeling threatened and not understanding, okay, why are these people acting this way? Theologically, we can just say, well, it's sin Mm -hmm. because we're in a fallen world. Yes. But we can still have compassion for these people um there there is um a lot of research going into the science of addiction right now and one of my favorite quotes and conclusions on these studies is that every addiction is a result of trauma but not every trauma will result in addiction so earlier in the podcast i talked about regulation they mm-hmm. gave examples of regulation, how when somebody feels upregulated, anxious, we want to match their energy level. We can't just go up to them with calming words and expect them to match us. So we can go take them out to the barn with the chickens, mm-hmm. which is loud. So it's matching their regulation state. And then we move into the mid-regulation and down-regulation. People have to go through that sequential um, brain functioning on their own, at their own time and at their own pace. And so when we're talking about regulation, one of the things we have to understand is that people with addictions, people who are homeless, they're mostly spending their time in their brainstem Mm -hmm. in fight, flight, or freeze. Anything we practice, we get better at it because our neural pathways are getting wider, they're getting deeper, we're setting down a pretty strong groove in your brain. It becomes a habit. Mm-hmm. It becomes automatic. So when people are constantly being triggered, when you're living on the streets and you are in a survival mode, you're upregulated almost constantly. And that's exhausting. So you have higher cortisol. You have higher adrenaline. That means that you're not in a state of mind to form healthy attachments. That you are looking for any and all ways to survive. Um, We work with survivors of human trafficking. And these people have had to learn a lot of manipulation skills just for surviving, just to stay alive. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking again similarly at the homeless population, and a lot of those people are also trafficked. We have to approach them with a huge sense of compassion. And at the same time, be on our guard, knowing that these people are not capable of always reciprocating a safe relationship the way a neurotypical or a neural development, um, typical neural development person.
0: Definitely, definitely. I think the other thing is that we keep on talking about relationships and how good relationships will build into a more healthy lifestyle. But when you go out in the streets and you see these camps of homeless, there's not one healthy person among them. So when you put someone in a group, they always sink to the lowest common denominator. So when you have a group of addicts together in the street, constantly using that snake part of their brain, it's so hard to actually reach out to them. So when it comes to helping the homeless, what do you think of giving money to panhandlers? Does that help them or does it hurt them?
1: That is a hard question. I know. So I'm sorry I to hit you with the hard <laughs> question. It's so complex because you know, really so want complex. to, but you don't and know. And here's where I I fall back on my theology is what we're responsible for as individuals, and especially if you if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And walking with the Lord There might be ideas that come into your head that are of God. And as being in relationship with God, you obey God. So if you drive past a panhandler and you sense the Holy Spirit going, give this person money, you obey. Because you don't know. Maybe that person is an angel. I don't know. We don't know. Exactly. God knows a lot more than we do. So that's why that's a really hard question. I can tell you the practical um advice that i've gotten um again working with numerous organizations um, working with shelters um all that kind of stuff for the austin area and I, i can't speak this over other cities i don't i'm assuming that they're very similar um one of the risks that is just the reality of this lifestyle is there's a lot of organized crime that we just don't we don't know and it's hard to assess it. It's hard to measure Even with um, with survivors of human trafficking, we, we don't have really an idea of how many people are trafficked because it's all hidden. Mm-hmm. And so with the organized crime in the homeless populations, how can you assess that and get a measurement? You can't because so much of it is hidden. We do know that in the Austin area, there are organized crime lords um, who drop panhandlers off homeless people off and they are to collect a certain amount of money and they pool it and a lot of that money goes back to drug and alcohol and illegal things yeah. so um there's several organizations in Austin um one is Mission Possible they do church under the bridge um there's several shelters um for homeless people there are rehab programs for people that want to get well and that kind of brings up another challenge working with with people um who have this trauma is that there's a lot of shame there's a lot of guilt drugs and alcohol regulate the brain mm-hmm The brain wants to go from being dysregulated and feeling out of control to feeling regulated and controlled as quickly as possible. And drugs and alcohol do that. So it's very difficult to um, recover as an addict. So the other just reality of it, um, and this is again kind of going back to that theology part, is that not everybody wants to get well. We want people to be well. We want to fix people. And again, made in God's image, God is the redeemer. God is the restorer. And so reflecting that part of his image, we, we are compelled to do that. But we have to be very careful. And this is, again, where we stay and we walk with the Lord and only do what he tells us to do. Because we're not God. We're not mm-hmm. Jesus. We can't fix people. That's not what we're called to do. We are only called to love God and love others. And it's actually the work of the Spirit to fix people. It's the work of the Spirit to enlighten the eyes of hearts and minds that we might grow in spiritual knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And the Holy Spirit has to move to do that. And we can't... Force somebody to get well. We can provide, we can open up as many homeless shelters as possible to get all of the camps closed to where they would all have a roof over their head. Mm-hmm. But that's not going to work.
0: Unless they have motivation to. Unless that they want to get well. It's easy to be homeless, but it's hard to be well, which is something that I, I don't think that people like you and I understand how easy it is to be homeless one of our last episodes, not to plug this and this one or anything, but we talked with a man named Donnie Boyd, mm-hmm. and he's been working with the homeless a long time. And he talks about how monetarily practical it is, because everyone is trying to help you. So to actually have that motivation to come out of that is a rarity, and it is our responsibility to at least provide them with those opportunities. Yes. For not providing them with their op- with those opportunities then we are doing them a disservice. That's right. But as much as we want to fix people, we can't. That's right. We can't fix people alone with science or psychology. We have to bring in people who understand the spiritual aspects of this as well. Because you can talk about how if your father was an abuser, you will likely to be an abuser as well, which is a tragedy. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you can also look at that through the lens of generational sin and how that affects that. So there are so many different layers of therapy that we can give these people. And I think that this farm is a wonderful way to do that because it just slows everything down. This is the one thing that I've noticed a lot while I've been at this farm is I haven't seen anyone look at their phone. a little (laughs) bit of an old man at heart, so this is a pet peeve of mine. People look at their phone so often. Our world moves so fast now that we just don't get a chance to sit down and enjoy the beauty of it. So when you come out here, it's so easy to forget. Yeah. And it's it's a different environment entirely. It's like a different little world.
1: Well, and it's it's the ways that we need to let God do work on us and pray and ask God to do work on other people. And it's it's that moment, I think, that we realize that you, you have a purpose in life. Um, we spoke a little bit ago, too, just even how egocentric we can become that you know the world is ours for the taking Um, that chicken is ours for the eggs and the meat I mean we don't have to consider what that chicken's life needs to be to help it live up to its full potential because it's just easier for us just to take to exploit and I that I think that's such a dangerous mindset Um, because again falling back on Genesis 1 we are created for a purpose we are created for a loving relationship with God and one another. And, and our purpose to steward God's creation is not to exploit. It's not to take what we want. It's to help it flourish. It's to help it live up to its full potential. And when we can do that, we live up to our full potential as well. And again, it's I believe it's, it's a lesson of the Holy Spirit where, you know, these people are, are stuck in their primal brain. They're stuck in the fight, flight, or freeze. They're not coming to that higher brain processing of realizing, wait, I have an ability to not only look after my own needs, but also after the needs of others. and But that's not happening in the primal brain. Mm-hmm. The primal brain is only about self-preservation. And so when you can start moving up to the higher brain functionings, like the limbic system, processing through emotions and feelings, a lot of times people with that trauma background, once they start processing feelings and emotions, it's it's terrifying. Yeah. And they don't have a safe place to do that. So once people with trauma start processing their emotions, it's very scary and very threatening. And it can start all of the alarms going off again and triggering the fight, flight, or freeze. And then they get dysregulated. And so... They'll drink or do drugs or do whatever the unhealthy regulation activity is. And so teaching people at the farm how to care for the animals, it's a very regulating experience. And so as their brain starts moving from that upregulated to mid-regulating and down-regulating, we are there to be in relationship with them. They are in a safe place that they can start Processing through things that they can start talking through some of their experiences, and it's a very natural progression. It's not, it's not done in an office. Um, we can very successfully develop these trust relationships because our focus is on regulating the mind, and because these rich somatosensory experiences. Put the brain in that just right state for learning for relational attachment and then we have trained professionals that can come and help them unpack some of those experiences and then once they can start grieving um, and lamenting and I, I think that's a big part of it um, and again that, that theological perspective coming in here when i talk about processing through the trauma that's what I mean when I say that. I mean lamenting and grieving. Um, and I think as a culture, we have lost sight of what it is to lament and to grieve. And I think we have to be careful as, as Christians to not rush that process. We, we think that um, because we're Christian, because we know Christ and, and he's supposed to fix everything, that everything is supposed to already be fixed. But the reality is, is, it's not fixed yet. Christ has not returned. We still are in this funky time of after Christ ascended, waiting for his return. So God has not fully restored and redeemed creation yet. And so we have to live in that tension. We want to do that. We don't want to live in the tension. We want everything to be resolved and to be fixed and to be done and to be happy. And we find joy, of course, in the Lord. But there's still so much to grieve and lament. Um, and I don't want to go off on a huge tangent with that, but that's, um, that's just another layer. I think of how, how God works on people is God is very kind and gentle. And when you can spend time with God and his creation, God comforts you. And when we cry out to God and we lament and we permit ourselves to be sad, we, we, um, Let God do work on us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5 says, thanks be to God who comforts us so we can be a comfort to others. I totally butchered that verse, but you can look it up. Don't worry about it. It's all good. But the point is, we need to be going to God for comfort first. We need to be letting God do a work on us if we're going to be helping others. And so when it comes to zeroing in, on these certain populations of of, um, individuals, homeless population. It's the same as any other person or population. First, we have a relationship with God, and we let God do work on us. We pray for these people that the Holy Spirit would enlighten the eyes of their hearts, and that you tell the Lord, here I am, send me. God, however you want me to be involved in this person's life, whatever that looks like, everything I am is yours. Everything I have is yours. All of my abilities belong to you. So let me give back what you have given me. And God, you use that for your glory to help this person. Because ultimately, only God knows how we need to help that person and what that person actually needs from us. And maybe our role in that person's life is just planting a seed. Um, uh, the road to recovery is very long and it's not a beautiful straight line it's more like a roller coaster of ups and downs of lapses of relapses of good things happening it's a mess and it's hard but if we can look at every person with the eyes that God looks at them. We find ourselves being able to offer more compassion to these people, and then in the moment know what would be the practical help at this time. So, at the beginning of this conversation, a panhandler example, mm-hmm. they may or may not need you to hand them twenty bucks. Yeah, you're not going to know unless you're in that moment. Um, some practical things I've done. Um, my general rule. And this is just me personally. I avoid handing out money at all costs mm-hmm. just because we want to be very careful. You want to give compassion, but you don't want to enable people. Um, so, what I have done is bought meals. I ask certain dentists or doctors to donate, like, you know, when you go to the dentist, you get like your little bag of toothpaste and toothbrushes. Yeah to give them the things that that money should be buying for them.
0: Exactly, that's really smart.
1: And they're on the street, they're showing you that they're not a good steward of money. Mm -hmm. And money is just a means to an end. So I prefer to give them things that their money should be buying. Instead of entrusting to them to buy the things to take care of themselves, I give them those things instead. And it's the same amount of money for me. Mm -hmm. So instead of $20, I'll buy $20 of socks. Yeah. Um, or I'll go to Savers and get sweatshirts if it's cold outside. By twenty dollars worth of sweatshirts at Savers, you can get like ten sweatshirts and put together little gift bags that you can hand out. Because that's what really they need to be spending their money on. Definitely. Um
0: and that's another way that we're not enabling these people to do bad things on the streets. Right. So if they are related to a crime cartel of crime, I don't organized know. Crime. Yeah. Organized crime. Okay. Organized crime, that's the word. Uh, then you're really not giving them anything. I don't think that organized criminals want socks. But Correct. real homeless people do. Correct. Now, if we can backtrack for just a second, I want to talk about that lamentation thing again. Yeah. So you were you were a nurse, so I want to draw a little bit of analogy there. You can't help someone, like if, if they were shot, if they were stabbed, it's hard for you to help them if they don't tell you that they were shot or stabbed. They have to first recognize that. They have to Correct. recognize that they have an issue and say, that really hurts. Let's get this fixed. Yes. And again, to go back and rant on the culture is what all of us do nowadays, is that we're moving so fast, either we spend way too much time nitpicking every single bad thing that has happened to us and saying, this is why I can't do all of these things, or we just block it all out and we say, "I, I don't have emotions, I don't cry, I'm not sad. And both of those are equally unhealthy and things that we have to avoid especially when you're in a dangerous situation like being homeless Mm -hmm. because those people, they're not mentally stable. And that's the best way to recovery is bringing them back some type of stability. Correct. So that was my input, but please keep on going.
1: And you're exactly right. People, first of all, have to recognize, yes, that they have that wound. And they also have to want to get it fixed. When Jesus was on earth, he approached a man at the pool of Bethsaida and an angel would come down and stir the pool. And if you touched the pool, you'd be healed. And this man had sat there for a number of years and he never managed to get down to the pool. And the part that we read, Jesus approaching him, the first thing Jesus asks is, do you want to get well? And the first time I read that, I thought, well, that's a silly question. Of course, this man wants to get well. Because why would he be sitting at the pool if he didn't want to get well? But I, it struck me that Jesus asked him, and it forced that man to be introspective and evaluate his motive and his drive. And I think that man probably asked himself that question as well. Hmm. Do I want? Because what it meant to be not well is he could just still be sitting by that pool and we can read into the story more than maybe we should. We have to be careful doing that with scripture. But if we think about how, what are things in our life that we're not ready for God to heal yet? We're not well all the time, 100% everything, which is right why we need Jesus every day. And... This man, I think, realized, I do want to get well. It's time. I'm done sitting at this pool. So Jesus healed him. When we get to the part in the Synoptic Gospels about that woman touching the fringe of Jesus' cloak, Mm -hmm. she pursued him. She wanted to get well. And she was healed because of her faith. Anyone who came to Jesus, he healed. And he made them well. Mm -hmm. But the people that didn't seek Jesus for healing, they either didn't know that they weren't well (laughs) or they weren't ready to get well. Luke does a phenomenal job in his gospel, drawing a lot of parallels as a physician. Um, I think we have to be careful with that and then also recognize that not everyone, we might see that they're not well, but they don't see that they're not well. And then even if they do see that they're not well, are they willing to put in a work to get well? Exactly.
0: And sometimes that's a part of their identity. It's just like, that's I right. am unwell and that is who I am. Instead of saying, I am me and this is my individual characteristics, a lot of times, especially in a younger generation, they'll say, I am Noah. I have depression. I have anxiety. And that sickness becomes a part of them. Yeah. But in order to be healed, you have to separate you from the sickness. That's
1: right. And yeah. it can become an excuse.
0: Yeah. And it's it's so easy to fall back on that. That's right. It really is. Yeah. yeah. All righty. So this has been an amazing interview. I feel like if you gave us the opportunity, we could keep on talking for hours and hours. <laughs> because this subject, it's so expansive. It covers it so many it's things. A lot.
1: It's a
0: lot. <sighs> Definitely. We have been sitting down for quite some time and our backs are beginning to ache. So I think that we're going to call it good right here. There is one thing that I would like you to share with us before we go, and it's how you embarrass your 15-year-old son with the farm. I think yes. that this should be recorded forever because it's
1: amazing. Oh dear! So when Noah first showed up to the farm this morning, I walked around and gave him a little tour. And poor Noah, he doesn't know me and some of my sick humor. So having my medical background, I'm not really shy about body parts or calling it what it is. But my 15-year-old is... <laughs> So we were walking out by the garden, Noah and I, and I noticed that this beautiful vine has a bunch of gourds growing on it finally. And I had never planted these gourds before. My 15-year-old son is the one that picked the seeds out. And he handed me the seed packet, and I laughed when I saw it. And this particular gourd is called the dinosaur gourd. And you go ahead and Google that, see what it looks like. You'll see that it looks like big green dinosaur testicles. There's no way around it. I mean, not are, even in the slightest you can't disguise it you can't disguise it they are veiny and wrinkled <laughs> and i just laughed and i said these look like testicles they look like big green testicles and my son just about died and he said mom <laughs> ah i like, no, this is fantastic so i had never planted these before and i'm just absolutely delighted that now i can walk out by my garden and see big giant green testicles hanging down <laughs> all over the fence um It just makes me smile and laugh. And I just think God is so incredibly funny. And, you know, it's just one of those things every time I look at it, I laugh. And it's truly a gift from God because He knows my humor. And I just think it's.
0: It's so great. We'll have to put a picture of them in the show notes for today because (laughs) they are the funniest things I've ever seen. Just creation in general can be hilarious. I. If you don't have a sense of humor while studying nature, then I think that you're doing it wrong. agree. So that is one of the funniest plants I've ever Agreed. seen. I agree. Alrighty. Well, other than embarrassing your 15, 15-year-old son, I think that this has been a very productive meeting. <laughs> so thank you so much. I really appreciate all yeah. of your time. So we'll actually be posting this in just a couple of hours, so you'll be able to go back and listen to our entire discussion yet again. I'm sure that that's exactly what you'll be doing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Never. All right. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining us for the third episode of Stories from the Upside Down. Please remember, if you like this content, like and subscribe. Every good review counts. You can follow us on Spotify or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. I hope that you all have a great day. Bye now.